Lord, it is moments like that that the songwriter described that we treasure. Who are we to come into your presence and to be recipients of such grace and love and mercy? It's overwhelming, Father. It's overwhelming. It's undeserved. It's more than enough. Lord, you are so good to us. And we love you. We, we love to delight in you. We love who you are. We love all that you do. You are good. And you are right and righteous in all your deeds. We come, Lord, together now with all of this past week in view. We don't put it out of our minds. We put it in our minds and we see you. We see your faithfulness. We see your grace. We see your love. We see your provision, your protection. All of it brings us to a point of crescendo in our worship of a God so great. And now, Lord, we have the opportunity to feast together in your word, to hear from you with authority, Lord, as if you were speaking to us in this place right now. Oh, God, thank you for the gift of your word. And Holy Spirit, come now, we pray, and move in power as I seek to preach faithfully these words. Open our hearts. Lord, convict us. Weigh heavy as need be that we would be changed and more delighting in you, more consistently worshipers of all of that you are. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior and joy, and we pray that you would magnify him to us today as we journey together. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, kids, you can be dismissed to go to your class this morning. If you need a Bible, just wave your hands and the ushers can get you one. We're continuing in our series through the the Gospel of Luke, studying the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I titled the sermon, Prepare the Way of the Lord. This is a familiar phrase uh, in connection with John the Baptist. This is his, his refrain. I want to begin just by considering these first six verses. Uh, they really uh, establish us in this passage. I titled these, this section here, Preaching Repentance. Preaching Repentance. Let me just read a, a little ways in here and we'll unpack some of this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. And during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, now we've been moving through this account and Luke has been unfolding important pieces along the way. Now we're circling back around to the forerunner, John the Baptist. And so when you see John, son of Zechariah, what does that remind you of? It's a miracle child. This, this is a child that was given to an old couple or advanced in years, I should say. Remember? They shouldn't be having kids and yet God brought this child, and there was prophetic announcement at his arrival. 
Remember uh, the praise of Zechariah who couldn't speak for all those months. And then he, he praised the Lord for his gift and pointed to the Messiah. Here we are now in a transition point in the Gospel of Luke from introductory matters, meeting important people, to now really initiating the ministry of Christ. And the first step in this is the forerunner and his ministry. His, he's the spokesman of the Messiah. In the wilderness, uh, Luke the historian gives us five different uh, reference points here in these opening verses. These guys that have difficult names to uh, pronounce are significant in history. And so we can identify a date roughly around 29 A.D., uh, maybe a year earlier, maybe a year later, somewhere like that. But we know because Luke is, is so careful with all of these details, we have a, a point in time and we have a place. Now, in the background here, I gave you a picture that we took of this Judean wilderness where John lived. A little bit about John. He's the first prophet sent by God in 460 years. So going all the way back to where Malachi left off, uh, there has been little glimpses of glory along the way as John was uh, uh, born and then the angel visited Mary and then Simeon and Anna prophesied. But here is a full-fledged, full-time prophet sent by the Lord. It's been 460 years. John was uh, a bit of an eccentric guy. He, he sported a camel hair robe or, or garment and he had a leather belt that he wrapped around it. And we know this is unique because of the, of the detail given. Uh, he he kind of stood out. He ate locusts and wild honey. Now, this sounds like some kind of tweak on the keto diet or something, right? I mean, that, that's grasshoppers, okay? You get grasshoppers, you dip them in honey. Has anyone ever done this? We sh that's what I should have done to illustrate the sermon. We could have had grasshoppers and wild honey together. Maybe next week. He lived in the Judean wilderness. Here's a, another picture of this. I, I took this uh, on top of a knoll, and I wanted to show you here. Uh, don't you kind of see Yakima? A little bit of Yakima? This, this looks familiar to me. I grew up in Yakima, only without the sagebrush. It's like you've got these rolling hills. It is hot. It is dry. I don't even know how grasshoppers live out here. I mean, we're talking rough stuff. And then if you could see through a bit of the haze, over here is the Dead Sea, and the Jordan River runs right up through here, all the way up here, up to the uh, Sea of Galilee. So we're looking east, down out of this wilderness where John would have lived, and then he came down, um, by the way, Jericho is right down here, the city of Jericho, and the Jordan River is just on the other side. So he came down out of the, the back country and began to to speak the word of the Lord. Uh, an amazing thing. Let's keep reading. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the, the crooked will become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Wow. What an amazing ministry John the Baptist has. 
He comes in, as prophesied, the spirit of Elijah. He comes with a message that echoes the prophetic work of Elijah. And so Isaiah's words come to fulfillment in the ministry of this one crying in the wilderness. What's interesting about these words is they are uh, maybe not as familiar to us as they would have been to the original audience. This proclamation, this going on ahead, is, is uh, quite common in this day. The king would send a messenger, always, before he arrived in a city, he would send a messenger, and that messenger would pronounce, the king is coming. Get ready. Clean up the city. Everybody, put that stuff away. Straighten out the, the road. Uh, fix the potholes. And they would go to work, and their goal was that when the king would arrive, the city would be spectacular, prepared, and ready for his arrival. That proclamation, that, that anticipation of the king's arrival is exactly what John the Baptist was sent by the Lord to do for the king of kings. The king is coming. So, how is it that John prepared the way for Jesus? How is he preparing the way? Well, we know what he's not doing is filling in potholes, okay? That's, it's different. He's calling something else into view. And this is an amazing thing that he does. He proclaims a baptism of repentance for or with a view to, uh, most literally, with a view to the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's interesting. That doesn't sound like a king. That sounds like something else, right? And so you begin asking the question, what effect does John's ministry have in preparation of Jesus' arrival? And you see, in fact, that it's a spiritual salvation that is in view. We're talking about not power and armies and uh, taking a census and gathering people or putting troops in order. We're talking about souls, and sin, and forgiveness, and salvation. This was just lost on the people of the day. When this messianic anticipation was realized, they thought political. Rome is the occupying force. We got a problem. The Messiah will obviously come and deliver us from the hand of the oppressor, the Romans. And yet John begins to preach, and his sin is tuned to the very heart of each man and woman who hears it and becomes extremely effective. His preaching by the power of God and the Spirit of God that indwelt John from before he was born, right? The effect was massive response. People become, began to journey down to the Jordan to hear him preach and thousands upon thousands were being baptized. People would come all the way from Jerusalem to hear him. There's a prophet. He speaks for God. He speaks of forgiveness of sins. He's baptizing in the Jordan River. This was not a common thing. This is not a normal thing. Good news for all nations, for all flesh. This also shows us it's beyond political. This is spiritual. This is a, a global reach, a nation message to the ends of the earth. They will see the Savior. Let's continue on through these verses. Prophetic warning, verse 7. 
He said, therefore, to the crowds uh, that came out to be baptized by him, (laughs) a seeker-sensitive message here, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hmm. There seems to be in our day a lack of this kind of tone. I I fear because of overreaction that there have been many pulpits that have been whitewashed of this kind of clarity, exhortation. Get in your face and tell it like it is. John the Baptist was not one of these men. He spoke for the Lord and he spoke with a holy boldness right to the heart of the matter. In Matthew, we read specifically there were Pharisees who came out. And, and I think this address was targeted not only to the crowds, but even more specifically to the Pharisees. Is what we see in the book of, of Matthew. And Jesus employed the very same words. You brood of vipers. He even added, you whitewash walls, whitewash tombs. Hmm. Why would he say this? Are these words to call names? Is John trying to prop himself up and feel better about himself by belittling others? Or is this the kind of shock to the, 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 the seared conscience of those who had been living for so long in their just religious routine that they needed to be called out and addressed. I think it's the latter. To call someone in this day a brood of vipers is the equivalent of calling them sons of Satan or sons of the snake. This was unbelievably offensive. So uh, here's what we know John was not doing. John was not preaching to try to build the biggest megachurch in town. John was not preaching to try to be popular with every single person who came to hear him preach. John was preaching the Word of God and seeking to land it with fire in the souls of all who heard. And there were some who came with hearts of stone. And he brought out the, uh, the, the sledgehammer, as it were, to attack that stone-cold heart, that resistance, that pride. Oh, we have Abraham as our father. God can make children out of these stones. Reminds me of what Jesus would say a number of chapters later. We'll get there. If if the, the people don't praise me on his way down the Mount of Olives, even these very stones will be raised up to praise me. In short, he calls them to repent. Repent! Judgment is coming. Now, here's the thing you've got to see. Here's what I think our generation has to be so careful not to throw out. This is good news. 
over and over and over. This is message is referred to as good news. And the, the news comes, repent, judgment is coming. Why is that good news? Because the call to repent is, 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 is real. And there is hope for those who do. You can escape the coming judgment. But you better repent and you better do it today. Hmm. Religion or relationship. Friends, our experience in the Holy Land was incredible. It was just mind-blowing. But I'll tell you something. It was sobering as well. Because like in this day, uh, even today, this religious routine continues. All of the things that you have to do, all of the different hats that you have to wear, all of the strap and the wrapping and this and that and jump through hoop and do this and that and don't do this and don't do that. It's all of this just religious rigor to work and do. You can do all of that and have a heart of stone to the Lord. But here's the even more scary thing. You can be here and stand and sing and sit and hear and stand and leave and have the exact same problem. Religion has never saved anyone. Your record of attendance in church means nothing if that's where you place your hope. Your good deeds are worthless if Christ is not the joy of your heart. It's relationship with God that is the core. And I'm telling you, you can see it in the Holy Land, but you don't have to go very far in Whatcom County to notice this. There are entire denominations that function in this religious routine, and there is no talk of a relationship, a personal, intimate, loving relationship with the God who is. And so the warning meets us right here today. In this room, lest we point the finger over to Israel, to the Jews, and say, you guys missed it. You think that it was all the things you were doing, and, and Jesus was right under your nose. Many, many will say, Lord, didn't we go to church? Didn't we? pray didn't we sing didn't we do good things in your name and he will say depart from me I, I don't know you i never knew you and so we oh we just have to be so keen to not look to the work of our hands to save us but look to the work of christ alone to save us that's the heart of the good news in this day too and so he calls them out of their religious vigor and just all of this action and says, hey, all of this is fine and good. It's, it means nothing if your heart is far from God. Hmm. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see the difference here? Don't just bear fruit. You can bear fruit all you want. The, the problem is this is not going to be good fruit. Good fruit is the fruit that is in keeping with a, a walk with God, a, a repentant closeness, intimacy, relationship with the Lord, the one who is. 
calls back to mind Joel's uh, prophecy. Return to me, the Lord says. How? With all your heart. Return with all your heart. That's the first thing he says. And the expression of that then is fasting and weeping and mourning. And then he says this, just in case we miss it. Rend your hearts, not your garments. It's not about the exterior. We have to understand that the root of of joy and treasure and, and our walk with God is an internal reality first. That's why when we baptize here, our baptisms are a display. No one is being saved by being baptized. They're proclaiming they have already been saved, and they want to make it visible. That's what works do. So bear fruit in keeping with the heart that's with the Lord and right before Him. A repentant heart. And do it today. If today you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown, where? Into the fire. John the Baptist preached the reality of hell. Jesus preached more than any other author or speaker in the New Testament about the realities of hell. A good news message is not good news if you leave out the reality of unending punishment in hell. The fires of hell. We don't believe in annihilationism. We believe in a God who is just infinitely so and has so been offended by our sin that hell is eternal, conscious torment by God upon all those that he sends justly to that place. The lake of fire. Some would call that hellfire and brimstone preaching that has no place in churches. I would say, yeah, it is hellfire and brimstone preaching, and John the Baptist preached it. Now, if that's the only thing we talk about, and forget to talk about the joy, the good news, the love of God that is calling us to repent, then we have an, a, an unbalanced gospel. But we don't have a gospel if we have no hell. Hmm. It makes the gospel more glorious when you realize I've been saved from the fires of hell. We believers who have placed our faith in Jesus should smell the smoke of those flames and say, I deserve that. But by grace, through His work alone, I have been forgiven. It adds weight to the the call to repent of sin. There are consequences. This life is short. But that fire never burns out. Now, preparing the kingdom people. Verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, 
be content with your wages. You see what that is? That is the bearing of fruit in keeping with repentance. He's not saying go earn your repentance, go, go pay for your sins yourself. He's saying put your roots down in repentance with the Lord and let the roots bear fruit in your life of change. I love this question, what then shall we do? What does this question reveal to us? It says a lot about what's happening in the heart, doesn't it? Throughout history, there have been preachers who have heard this question over and over and over. I remember even George Whitfield, people literally near the front pleading with him to stop preaching so that they could respond. What is that? That is the work of the Holy Spirit that weighs heavy on a heart because of sin. The revealing that, in fact, things are not what they should be. There needs to be some, some change. There needs to be something that happens. What should we do? Fire awaits those who don't repent. We want to repent. What does it look like? I want to give you from Thomas Watson, a Puritan writer, a few aspects, as it were, or, or the mechanism of repentance. This can be helpful. There are five C's. You can write these in on your uh, back of your bulletin as we go. I call this the grace of conviction for sin. Remember this. The guilt that you feel when you sin is the gift of God. It comes with the purpose of driving you to your knees so that you'll repent of it and be free. Repentance, I would suggest, begins with conviction. It's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to convict of sin. And God's Spirit, in particularly connected to God's Word, will often weigh heavy on our hearts, whether during preaching or during morning, morning devotions or coming down the road the Word of God through the Spirit of God will reveal sin in our lives, inconsistencies, rebellion. That conviction is God's gift. And it should move us then to contrition. What should we do? What should we do? What's behind that is we feel horrible about our sin. This is not worldly grief. This is not the grief of, oh boy, I got caught. Ah, I wish I didn't get caught because I want to continue in sin. That's not that. That's worldly grief. This is, my sin is hideous. I see it. And I hate it. And I know you hate it. And it grieves you. And I sorrow for it. I feel the weight of my sin against you. And that moves us then to confession. Confession. When we agree with the Lord, what I did was wrong. It was offensive to you. It's worthy of eternal wrath. Just that one sin is so offensive to your infinite holiness. I agree with you in its hideous nature and I confess. I own it fully. I don't justify it. I don't uh, pull away from it. I don't try to minimize it. I own it. I said it, or I did it, or I didn't do it, and I should have. 
and it was sin. Listen to what Spurgeon said on this. Learn in confession to be honest with God. Do not give fair names to foul sins. Call them what you will, they will smell no sweeter. What God sees them to be, that do you labor to feel them to be. And with all openness of heart, acknowledge their real character. If our heart is not conscious of the hell-deservingness of sin, we cannot expect to find forgiveness. Do you see what he's saying? There is there's a weight of sin. The sinfulness of sin it should weigh on us. And then that moves us to confession in agreement with God, where we say, Lord, I, I, I bring this to you, and I lay it at your feet. Hmm. Confidence is the next C. Confidence. This is the, the role of faith. This is how the gospel meets us in our need. Not just when we are saved, but every single day until glory. When God weighs heavy on our hearts and reveals sin. Already today, multiple times, this has been occasioned in your life. Have you been sensitive to it? to catch your sin, to call it what it is, to move to the gospel. This confidence is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is, it's finished. He paid for my sins. Lord, I confess this to you, and in, in confidence and faith in Jesus' finished work, I lay it at the foot of the cross. And I claim this promise that if we confess our sins, you, O oh Lord, are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. That is confidence. Faith in the power of the gospel. Every day of the Christian life. Hmm. And then we come back to correction. This may be the fullest meaning of the word repent because to, to repent means to turn, to, to, to change one's mind concerning that sin. So I don't live in this sin and say, oh Lord, I'm sorry about it. And then, oh, oh, I'm still sorry about it. And then, um, you see, that's not repentance. Repentance is, I was walking this way and I chose this sin. And I call it what it is. And I take it and I lay it at the foot of the cross. And I turn to you. And I turn my back on that sin. I want to please you. I want to obey you. I want to walk with you, not against you. Hmm. Turn your back to sin. Turn your face to your Savior, to the Lord. This is where fruit happens. This is, this is where you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It is not the root. That's the work of Christ. The root is, He paid for my sin. It is finished. I can be forgiven because of Him. Now go and live out that forgiveness and bear fruit. Give your coat. Stop extorting and be content. You see all these things that begin to flow out of a heart at peace with God. It's a change of worship, a change of treasure. I'm saying, Lord, you are the most important in my life. You're my Lord, my Savior, my treasure. It leads to something stunningly beautiful in the Christian life. Joyful, submissive obedience. Not begrudging, 
Well, the Lord commanded it, so fine. I'll do it, but I don't have to like it. It's not obedience. Joyful obedience. This is faith in future grace. Your commands are good. You want the best for me, and I choose your best for me in joyful, submissive obedience. Today and tomorrow and the next day. Not the way of the world. The best way. God's way. With that in view, look at how this unfolds. As the people were in expectation. So this is happening. Uh, They're being baptized. This baptism, by the way, is a baptism of anticipation. Our baptism is one of celebration. They were anticipating Christ, the Messiah, and His work, and the forgiveness that He would accomplish. Our baptism is a celebration of the finished work of Christ and the work that He has accomplished in us. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the the Christ, the Messiah. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with, here it is again, unquenchable fire. He'll bring the wheat into the barn, but all the chaff that blows in the wind will be sentenced to the place where fire is never satisfied. It burns forever. He points to Jesus Christ. Think of how amazing it would be to see a prophet of God speaking God's words. Say, the one who's coming, I'm just, I'm just announcing that the king is coming. He is so much greater than I am. I don't even have the right to untie his sandals. The dirty feet walking through the desert, I don't have the right to even touch that. That's how holy he is. That's how righteous and worthy he is. This is an amazing statement of John. He knows his role. He knows his call. He knows the word of God. Hmm. He points to Jesus as the only Savior. So often there is an inclination in people to make saviors of people. Even preachers. Faithful preachers point to the king, not to themselves. Point to the 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 king of kings. They're messengers. John is a great example for us. He says, this Messiah is going to come and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit at Pentecost, I think this is that baptism of the Spirit that is referenced here. That where the Spirit comes down and the, the apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to prophesy and speak in all kinds of tongues, what descended upon them? As if tongues of fire descended upon them. I don't think that is the full extent of this reference, however. His baptizing is with the Holy Spirit for those who repent, for those who believe. And for those who don't, unquenchable fire. I want you to picture a baptismal tank filled 
with lava, boiling hot. That is the nature of this baptism. Upon the return of Christ, those who are not found in Christ, they will be placed in unquenchable fire, literally baptized by Jesus Himself into the fires of hell. This is warning. It's good news. It's good news. This is the nature of the gospel that we preach from the Bible. It's unloving to pull out the fires of hell. It's it's unloving to tell people who are running with breakneck speed toward those flames, you'll be all right. Just be a good person. Jesus is the Savior of all who repent. Of all who repent. And so the call to that group of people, Pharisees, young and old, rich or poor, slave or free, come, repent! And the call is the same today. Repent. Now, let's close this uh, narrative out. Verse 18, with many other exhortations, he preached good news. You see this? You've got to see this. This coming together. This is good news that he's preaching to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, he locked up John in prison. This is a short summary of what has happened here. Herod decides that his brother's wife, that's Philip, over there in the east, is uh, someone that he should be married to and not Philip. And so he just decides to take Philip's wife to be his wife. And John went after him for it. Now here's the thing I admire about John. He speaks the word and he calls out sin. And he even addresses Herod with the good news. Herod, there's still time. You need to repent for this sin, this public display of adultery and treachery. And as he calls this out, the conviction and the guilt Herod, in his heart, hardens his heart. He doesn't turn to the Lord. He turns away from the Lord, and he takes John and imprisons him to shut him up. Hmm. It's a response that happens to this day. The hardening of a heart. The ignoring of the call to repent. May it not happen here, in this place today. He calls all people, everywhere, to repent. Rulers, authorities, those low, those high. This is his message. This is the way he prepares the way. The lofty will be brought low. The lowly will be raised up. And the crooked, they will be made straight. Incredible. Our response this morning, I just want to encourage you to Take some notes about this kind of preaching that John the Baptist demonstrates. We long here at this church to fill this pulpit with men who will similarly preach the whole counsel of God without apology or compromise. Not pulling punches, not skipping verses. Bring both barrels of God's Word winsomely, lovingly, with grace 
and with authority. Encouraging and exhorting. When you podcast, when you turn the TV on, when you're looking for teachers or preachers throughout the week to feed your soul, a a devotion in the morning, a book to read, find men of God like John the Baptist in their preaching who preach authoritatively the Word of God. They don't mince words. They don't pull punches. They call it like it is. And they, if need be, they step on your toes. That needs to happen. You need to be regularly called out. We all do. Convicted of our sins. Called to repent. Find preachers, teachers, who show the courage to love and exhort without compromise and who are relentless in their focus on Jesus Christ. Relentless. And you will be fed. Your soul will be nourished with the Word of God. I stand before you right here in this place with a message. The King is coming again. He's returning. He says He's coming again. And when He comes, He will tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of God. And he will take the nations out with, it says, a sword that comes out of his mouth. He will wipe out nations. He is not coming as a suffering servant. He is coming as the rider victorious on the white war horse. And he will put down all rebellion and sin. And all those who have repented of their sins and trusted him as Savior and Lord will be greeting him with joy. And every single person who has not repented of their sins will face eternal judgment and fire that is unquenchable. Are you ready for his return? The call to repent meets us all today. Turn from sin. Turn from sin. He knows where this lands. He knows all the secrets. He knows every closet that you would prefer to keep the door closed on. He knows everything. And He, in His love and His grace, through His Holy Spirit right now, landing in your soul, is calling you, turn, turn, turn from your sin. Call it what it is. Feel the weight of your offense against God. And then confess it with confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven. If you're here and you've never done this, this is, this is new to you and, and Jesus is not your Lord and your Savior, this could be the first day of your eternal life. Respond to the call. Today, the axe is at the root of the tree. Don't wait. Trust Him as Savior. Trust Him as Lord. And you will delight at His return. Let's pray. Father, I do not know all that lies behind closed doors in the souls, the secrets of the heart. But You do. You see all. We cannot escape from You. We cannot hide anything. And there will come a day when all will be laid bare and exposed. And we will give an account. 
And Father, I pray that today by your goodness and grace, through your sovereign power, you would stir in hearts and bring repentance, O Lord. Soften hearts. Turn people from sin to Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here who thinks that their sin is too grievous, too too much to be forgiven, that you would show them the, the price that Jesus paid taking upon Himself all of our sin and and dying the death that we deserve and rising victoriously. It is finished. It is paid in full. Lord, we love You and we thank You for this forgiveness, for this this joy, uh, this experience of walking with You and loving You and knowing You through Jesus Christ. I thank You that there is a place for sinners to go and find life and peace, and hope. We love you, Father. We long to please you and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.